Hey everyone, it's Anita and Lucas. Welcome to Chain Reaction, where we unpack and explain the latest in crypto news, drama, and trends, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. So today for our interview, we chatted with Jack Liu, who's the CEO of NFT marketplace Magic Eden. In June, the startup raised $130 million at a $1.6 billion valuation. Know what you're thinking? There are a lot of unicorns in the space. This one was a little different because it happened after the crypto downturn had already come into full effect. So OpenSea may be top dog in the NFT marketplace world after a pretty massive head start, but this company, Magic Eden, has quickly made a name for itself as the go-to place to buy NFTs on the Solana blockchain. The young, now unicorn startup is getting ready for a major launch on the Ethereum blockchain as it looks to come for the industry's players on their home turf. This was a wide-ranging, super great conversation, so let's get straight into it. Jack, it's great to have you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lucas. Yeah, pleasure to be here. So, I mean, Magic Eden has been in the news a lot lately. And I guess for more of our general audience listening that don't follow crypto super closely, maybe they've heard of OpenSea, but Magic Eden has been a pretty uprising strength in the NFT marketplace world in the past year or so. What's been going on and how do you compare it to kind of OpenSea and some of these other big platforms? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on to tell a bit about our story. So Magic Eden, we're the biggest marketplace on Solana. That's where our home is and our origin story is. So Solana being one of these new kind of frontier blockchains and developer platforms. So we started off there and recently announced our expansion to the Ethereum ecosystem where some of our peer marketplaces have kind of like started their base from. But our like our TLDR story is we started about 10 months ago. We've processed around $2 billion of NFT trades on our platform, all of that on Solana. And right now we transact over 90% of all the Solana NFTs. I think how we're a little different to other marketplaces is a couple of dimensions. Number one, we're not really a generalized marketplace that play in every category. Like we don't play in one-on-one fine art. We don't do like usernames, domain names. There's two that we really focus on. We really want to be a world-class and industry-leading player. And number one would be collectibles. So it started off as like profile photos, but now it's kind of expanded into different things like avatars and so on. But collectibles is, you know, one category. And the other one for us is games. And for both of those kind of use cases, we want to go super, super deep, right? So for example, on the gaming side, gamers can come to Magic Eden and play the game itself. And the philosophy there has always been around for us to say, hey, like, NFTs is a really new abstract kind of concept, right? You can like crypto in general is like pretty abstract just to the average person. Yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> it's a, and uh, our view has always been that, hey, you come to Magic Eden, the first thing we ask our users to do should not be like to fork out thousands of dollars to buy this like new abstract thing that just appeared on the internet. You should actually experience the value first without having to pay for anything. So come here, play a game, play a crypto game. If you like it and you know, you're know you immersed in it, then if you feel so compelled to buy something and take it home and enjoy it and enjoy the rest of the experience, you can do that as well. So that's kind of the philosophy and kind of the immersive product experience that we want to build. We have some other analogies on the collectible side, but that's kind of roughly how we differentiate. Right. And yeah, I guess speaking about the different types of NFTs that are out there, I want to get your thoughts on how you think user habits are sort of changing around NFTs. Like I know there's a lot of use cases, like you mentioned gaming, but there's a lot of use cases beyond just like profile pictures and visual art. But it seems like those have had slower uptake over the past year or so. So do you see that shifting soon? And how are users changing what they want from NFTs? Yeah, it's a really good question. There's a couple of takes on it, right? Like I think number one, the use cases for NFTs is definitely expanding. And that's one of the primary reasons why we chose Solana as the first blockchain to build on in the first place. That was a really intentional choice for us. 
And our logic there was kind of thinking, hey, zooming out, NFTs as a thing is so early, right? And this is like first innings or even like pre-first innings of this whole space. And we think that the use cases for this new kind of technology primitive is going to explode. And that will be better built on a blockchain or developing environment where the cost and, you know, the barrier to experimentation is super low, right? And that's why um, we chose Solana and we saw these like new use cases around games, music, ticketing, and even for profile pictures, we saw some different takes on it, like mutations, staking, like gamifying the collectibles themselves, which we do not really see in other environments. So in some sense of the availability of new technology is enabling new use cases and things are looking pretty experimental and these like new things are starting. At the same time, I think, just currently where we are today in history, it's a bear market, sentiment is down. There is definitely a compression to like power users, like true believers, right? And that's, I think mm-hmm. that's not just the NFT thing, that's generally like, like crypto. all of Web3. Yeah. yeah, exactly, all of Web3. So now like the people who are still here, who are still retained in the ecosystem are like PAL users. A lot of them kind of were incepted into the ecosystem through collectibles, through trading. And that's the main, we see like the slivers of new like innovation more along that vein, like power user, power trading tools, financialization of crypto, a financialization of NFTs. So those are kind of some emerging themes that we're seeing. Yeah, I'm curious, gaming something that always interests me with NFTs, just because there's been so much talk. And obviously, like, it's very easy to illustrate some use cases when it comes to some of the existing in-app purchases and microtransactions people are making and conventional games. But there really haven't been any super successful either Solana or just like kind of general blockchain games that have felt like games, I guess. So what do you think the outlook is for that? And especially if it's like really about the core group of believers who are like in NFTs during the bear market, like how does a game or something like that get super popular and bring new volume to you guys? Yeah, I think think those are very accurate points. And yeah, uh, (laughs) for sure. Uh, Look, I think there's a couple of things. So number one, it's very hard to be in the business of picking like what's the best game that's going to come out. Like even the game industry, the logic of that industry has always been hits driven, right? And we as a platform and we as a kind of a Web3 platform, a technology platform, it's even harder for us to pick like who are going to be the winners or who are going to be massive. Just being, you know, one step removed from being like a content creator in the, in the game space. But that being said, there's a couple of thoughts there. I think like we see a massive pipeline of game creators under the hood building games. And that gives us a real sense of like bullishness on the category in general. And the reason for that is our philosophy of how this ecosystem grows has always been a creator first lens in the sense of we as a platform, our core thing is we're like a commerce and marketplace layer, right? On use cases that happen, you know, in the ecosystem. But it's the creators who create those use cases who are then going to pull end users into this ecosystem. Once we see a lot of gaming developers really exploring Web3, we became super bullish that, hey, some of these folks are going to create the next big hit, right? The second lens there is definitely right. Like, I think the right lens to look at games is there is no such thing as Web3 games, right? Or there is no such thing as Web3 gamers. People who want to play games do not go looking to play a Web3 game. They just want to go play a game. And what we see today is more the predominance of like Web3 games. So it's mostly like Web3 folks who then put like a skin over some kind of, you know, their Web3 ideas. 
I think we're going to see a shift where it's like pure game content developers who are masterful at developing content, masterful at developing game loops themselves, who are going to come into this space. And they're more like using Web3 as an instrument, as some tool to like surface or uh, realize some kind of a uh, player goal or a uh, product mm-hmm. goal right, within the game itself. When that happens, I think I'll you know, would be much more bullish of like real games and like very vibrant content coming into the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, how bullish are you that there's going to be a slice of the pie for you guys, though? Because I guess I feel like if some company right now, if you're playing with like PFPs, like obviously a team of five people could like spin up a fairly convincing PFP project, but it takes a lot of energy to create like a large world scale game. And therefore, I would kind of imagine that they'd be like, okay, if you transact these assets on our platform, it's whatever 1% transaction fees. But if you do it on other, maybe something's imbibed in the contract where it's like, there's like a kickback or something. I would imagine they'd try to discourage that, wouldn't you think? If it was like a popular enough game. That like just seems. Oh yeah, yeah, like yeah. the urge to create closed gardens. In, exactly, in some sense, yeah, right? yeah. Rather which, than to pilot, which you know, yeah, it's it's a it's something that the community would hope wouldn't happen. But even with like other side or something like that, they created ApeCoin and they're pushing users to transact in that way to buy parcels of land. So it's like there's always yeah, that. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think you know we'll have to see, right? Like we'll have to see how things play out. The thing I would definitely say is those kind of tensions between platform and content creators exist in many like manifestations, not just in Web3, not just in NFTs, but like in Web2, PC, console, all of that, right? So I'm sure there are those kind of dynamics at play that's just going to something that we have to solve. At the same time, I think in the gaming space and in the collectible space and many other aspects of NFTs, there is very strong convergence of interest as well. Right, very, very strong convergence of interest. And a few like things that's worth pointing out is number one, there is a strong like convergence of interest in terms of knowledge sharing and just especially like expertise, effectively like expertise based partnerships. Because what what the gameplay folks uh, imagine, put yourself in the shoes of a trailblazing indie game developer who wants to try Web three and innovate and build the next big thing. You've got limited runway. You have to build a really, really good game. You've raised like a bunch of money and now it's a bear market. Their primary motivation is around how do I build a really good game and like find a publisher and build a really engaged user base. All of that has got nothing to do with crypto and all of that has got nothing to do with blockchain. They're very disincentivized from then saying, yo, let me spend like a quarter of my runway to then figure out this like blockchain thing, which half the time is kind of jank and, you know, the, the, the systems and stuff like break all the time. They're really looking for a trusted partner to absolve that complexity for them and also actually hold their hand to say, here are all the do's and don'ts and all the pitfalls right? Like within the blockchain space. The second thing is that the reason that games uh, are attracted to this blockchain value prop in the first place is the ability for there to be a secondary market. Right, which previously they did not have a real business model to have. All of the the Web two games business models is really about like primary sales from the gaming publisher to the user and selling like its gift items, and they don't encourage resales among users because they had they had no way for the publisher to monetize those resales. But then, if you think about it, if they are attracted by the value proposition of users selling to each other. That happens in the crypto space in an open economy. Like that's the really unique thing about crypto. You have internet level liquidity of items being traded back and forth amongst users. So in that sense, it's really natural for them to partner with like a marketplace where we can facilitate that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's many other things as well I'm going to go into, but I would say, of course, there is some natural platform content creator tension, but just given where we are in this space, there's a lot of uh, convergence that's putting people together as well and making them want to work together. 
Totally. I want to actually hop to a different topic that's been on my mind based on some news that you guys announced earlier this month, which is that you were going to support Ethereum NFTs. And I'm curious if you can just talk a little bit more about that decision, just how you're going to stay true to this vision of wanting to keep costs down and everything and what the value prop is for Ethereum NFTs versus Solana NFTs. Yeah, absolutely. I think from day zero in the company, we've always wanted to be multi-chain. It was funny because the last couple of weeks we've been grinding so hard trying to build our ETH product. So yeah. I actually had some time to like walk down memory lane and like, <laughs> look at some of our like old like strategy decks or whatever. And yeah, from very, very beginning, we said, hey, let's go to like ETH at some point. I think the motivations is like, number one, ETH as an ecosystem is a NFT ecosystem that we've long admired. There are many, many creators there and many, many collections there which have like long legacies, a huge amount of prestige and like very storied reputations, right? Of being like groundbreaking, either groundbreaking in terms of the innovation or groundbreaking in terms of the impact on the world. Yeah, it's like all the, all the big, well-known projects. Exactly, exactly right. So us as a very community-driven marketplace and a very creative-first marketplace, there are many of those types of communities and creators who we want to partner in the ETH ecosystem, and we can learn a lot from them. So this has always been an area where we said, especially for collectibles, like that use case, there is so much more, like so much more that we can do and so much more we can expand to there. The second part about our value proposition is, I think actually the Solana and Ethereum ecosystems are converging. And we can see that we have many examples of end users who collect both on Ethereum and Solana. And at the same time, we have many examples of creators who both launch on ETH and then want to launch on Solana, right? Like we already work with those folks. And I think the general logic is that for collectors, they historically have seen Solana as more like a frontier chain or right. a frontier ecosystem. You know, they collect some stuff from ETH. They kind of like what they saw. Then they wanted to go to a younger ecosystem where there's like more upside, more innovation. Maybe like it's a bit more more unformed and they can, you know, have a bigger say in shaping that ecosystem. And there is a, almost a trickle down effect in some sense. So in that sense, like a lot of our users are very familiar with both of these ecosystems and we want to serve them well on both. We feel like on Solana, our vision of having very immersive kind of like marketplaces, like, you know, what I mentioned earlier, where you can come and play a game, you can come experience other things related to NFT trading. That value proposition has really resonated well with our existing user base. And we already know they already trade on ETH. So why don't we go and use that same philosophy to serve them better on ETH as well? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess this is sort of related, but one trend I've noticed with, you know, the the big crypto like token exchanges, not necessarily NFT marketplaces, is that fees have been coming down. And it seems like there's this sort of race to zero fees. You know, Coinbase is talking about that with its subscription business and all. I guess, do you see that eventually happening in the NFT marketplace space as well? <laughs> I hope not. Please no. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, yeah, so to be honest, I hope not. And to be really honest, I, I really don't know. So, Fair enough. Right? Like, on one hand, it's well-known news. There is a lot of new entrants into the NFT marketplace space who basically compete on low fees, not just low marketplace fees, but not having like creator royalties, like not respecting some like basic tenants of, of the NFT ecosystem. And then at the same time, from our live-through experience from Magic Eden, I find like our users in general don't care whether the fees are 2.5 or 2 or 1.5, right? And when we do like user interviews and feedback, like in general, that's like, you know, not not even in the top 10 of like user pain points or things that they want Magic Eater to solve. And then there's some other thing about market structure in the sense of 
marketplace fees relative to creator royalties. So like in NFTs, whenever a secondary sale happens, the seller will also have to pay fees to the original creator. The marketplace fee portion of the total fee amount that gets taken out of the sale is the vast small majority, like the significant majority there, right? So it's also like, yes, we can compress marketplace fees, but that doesn't really unlock so much more savings for the user. It's really the creator royalty part of it that has the lion's share of the fees. So in some sense, there are some like market structure reasons why I feel like all of this is, it's like a red herring in some sense. The more focus for Magic Eden, like our lens to this problem is more that it's always about user value. We as a product and as a platform, we have to provide value to our users, right? And as long as we are providing value to our users in X, Y, Z ways, we should be able to incentivize them and attract them to use Magic Eden regardless of the fees that we have. That's kind of of the on this. Yeah, because like last year, as you guys were growing a ton and the NFT marketplace at large was just really expanding, like there were a lot of people getting rich, but maybe that's becoming a little less true for the more recent entrance into the market over the past few months. So I guess like in that lens, it might seem like transaction fees could be something where, hey, maybe it's 2% or 2.5% or something like that. But when you're seeing the lines go down and down and down, maybe you're thinking like, okay, I like I like that two percent. I want that two percent in my bank account. So, yeah. uh, well, that's 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 a little bit of an aside, I guess. Zooming in onto like a individual situation. So, I know earlier this month you guys put in proposal to the ApeCoin DAO to kind of work on a proprietary marketplace for products in the Yugo world. And then you know, Rarible just came out with their fee. Yours kind of had like a tiered transaction fee structure based on if you're kind of already involved with one of the products, they're doing something that doesn't have any fees. That seems like it'd be kind of hard to compete with. So like, how do you feel about that as just kind of like a harbinger of the future of fee talk? Yeah, I I still go back to the point of, you know, obviously we have our own lens on this whole thing, right? Like if everything goes to zero, we don't have a business model. Like that's just like putting it candidly out there. Well, that's what Coinbase is discovering right now. (laughs) I feel like. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. There's a few like, I think like the structural trends that we see in the centralized exchange space for fungible tokens might not always play out in NFTs because there's a much bigger portion of like institutional market makers there. And even in the non-crypto world, there are like very special fee structures usually given to those ecosystem participants. Whereas in NFTs, there's just not enough liquidity in the overall ecosystem to really support those kind of market making institutional players and Therefore, I think like some of the fee compression you see in fungible tokens might not translate like one-to-one to NFT. On the other side of like ApeCoin and fees and like Magic Eden, ApeCoin proposal and fees, there's a couple of things there. Number one, like we really wanted to do this proposal with ApeCoin coming from this motivation in the sense of we think we're one of the best NFT marketplace product builders in the world. And I think our track record stands to speak for itself. We're one of the fastest like unicorns in the world, like in general, right? Like 10 months, we hit 1.6 billion. And then we were the number six marketplace in Solana to come along. And we had to overcome a lot of network effects that other incumbents had to get to where we are today. We didn't launch a token. We didn't incentivize behavior. We got there through like building great products, talking to our users and talking to our community and just moving really fast. That is our track record. And that's how, how we are, who we are. At the same time, we go to ETH with a lot of humility in the sense of, I almost think of us as saying, hey, we're like software guys who know how to build a really good app. Yeah. And we're like one of the best in the game, right? I would like to 
Make Pain that Reaction claim. is hosted by, by myself, time, we don't Anita Ramaswamy, along with my co-hosts, well Lucas Matney so and Jackie Melodic. We are produced by Yash. And I think it will be an amazing marriage for one of the best product builders. Editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Springer leads audience development. And Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening and see you next week. We want to build a marketplace because this is important for our ecosystem. I think it goes to say that like you are a world leading community and you then deserve a world leading product to go and match the status of your community. And we think we're the right people to deliver that for you. And our track record stands for itself. Mm. And in that sense, I don't need to compete on fees. The motivation of our proposal is we don't get paid at all if no one uses our product. So we are willing to say, we're going to build the best product there is commiserate with the heights of the ApeCoin community. And then if people are incentivized and find it useful and they like the experience and they use it, then Magito will be financially incentivized the same way as well. Mm-hmm. That's our that's take on Jack, I want to touch on a topic that's been in the news this week. I mean, one thing I was reading about was this like pseudo rare rug pull situation that happened. And I, it just got me thinking about, you know, NFTs more broadly. I know in February, you guys mandated that anyone who was minting an NFT on your platform would basically have to reveal their identity and go through the KYC process. And I, from my understanding, that's not the standard with all NFT marketplaces. So I'm wondering if you faced any pushback from creators about this. I know the decision was made to sort of increase safety or prevent rug pulls, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. So so we did, to be really honest. And um, it's a really interesting, I think, being a platform and even our like our thinking on this whole thing has evolved many, many times from, all, I guess, the wins we had all, along the way, but also like the major L's we had along the way as well, right? And, yeah. But the, <laughs> I think the real crux of it is that at the end of the day, building a platform product like this requires a balance between all of the users in the ecosystem. There are like creators, of course, and then there are end users, right? And at the start, given like the ethos of anonymity and stuff in crypto at large, it does seem like the norms would really, really favor the creator, right? Yeah. And we should say, you know, creators should be fully anonymous, yada, yada, yada. But after we really started the product, like our launchpad product and our creator product and so on, we realized like actually striking the balance so far in favor of creator is not right. It's not right for not just Magic Eden and the ecosystem, but it's really, really not right for the end user. The end user expects trust, safety, reliability, information transparency when they use a product like Magic Eden. And we cannot veer so far in favor of the creator that those things are disregarded. We have to effectively do a 360 degree view of what is the true health of a product like this. And if you want to build something that's really healthy and it's going to last for the long term, you have to cover all 360 degree view of these dimensions. So when we introduce policies like that, yes, some creators you know, chose not to work with us. Of course, like then we lost deals and we lost like customers yeah. and rev potential and stuff. But really, that's worth it. You know, like we should always, to build like a long-term product and a product with legacy, we really should focus on the user first, right? Imagine either and what we would care about, like that comes second or third down the line. So in that sense, yes, some creators dropped out of the line, but it was the right trade-off to make. I guess wrapping things up, just kind of zooming out from Magic Eden and looking at Solana versus Ethereum. As you've noted, it's a bear market. NFT volumes have been sliding. Lots of volumes have been sliding. But it also feels like, When times get uncertain, a lot of crypto investors move to some of the chains and tokens that have been more certain in the past. And like, you know, the Solana ETH pair has been kind of like dropping over time. I guess, how do you feel about having kind of the lion's share, especially right now, I guess, but like of your like revenues tied to Solana headed deeper into a bear market? Yeah, no special feelings either way. In the sense of, of course, we're hoping to take a big chunk of the ETH 
<laughs> right. the market as well. And so, you know, we measure our success on that. But I think, you know, in general, like, we're super optimistic for the Solana, like, ecosystem long term, right? I think if we zoom out and think about the last bull run, Solana was really the breakout story yeah. there in general. And I feel like in every, like, major bull run, there is some breakout use case or some breakout ecosystem that kind of, like, dominates. And I really feel like Solana has broken the sound barrier there. And we're very proud to have, like, started this ecosystem. And most importantly of all, we see very, very different use cases emerging in the Solana ecosystem vis-a-vis the Ethereum ecosystem. For us, we're like a user-first company rather than a chain-first or a technology-first company. Because even now, like our DNA as founders, we have four founders. We all come from like consumer internet, product management, consumer internet, technical engineering backgrounds. So for us, like as long as we see there are users in certain ecosystems and they have really clear pain points that we are well-positioned to serve and we have a very differentiated view to serve, we are happy to go there. We're happy to build towards that. Right. And the chain and the technology is just like some instrument for us to like serve those users, but it's not the primary consideration. So in that vein, we see Seoul develop its own like user ecosystem. We see like those users, uh, we, we see like very, very exciting use cases here. We're like very bullish about the future there. And of course, Ethereum has long been an ecosystem that we've admired, right? And of course, we want to go there and, you know, see what we can learn and how we can better serve those users there as well. So yeah, no special concerns or about any of those. Sounds good. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. And uh, thank you so much, Jack, for coming on. This was a really fascinating discussion. I personally learned a lot, so... Thank you. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks a ton for having me. Thanks, Jack. Thank you for the opportunity. We'll be back every week with interviews with the experts in the Web3 space. Catch Anita, Jackie, and myself every Thursday for the latest in crypto news. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform. And subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and more from our guests can be found in our show notes. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Chain underscore Reaction. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, Lucas Matney, along with my co-host, Anita Ramswamy. We are produced by Yashad Kulkarni, and our associate producer is Maggie Stamets, with editing by Kel Keller. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, Alyssa Stringer leads audience development, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.